I hate it for Stephen David that he made that faux pas, but I got to tell you, I, I feel like I could say anything tonight, and it's going to be okay, so. <laughs> it's a great sense of relief there. <laughs> Actually, I'm very glad to be here. I'm glad you're here, and it is always a joy, and joy to see you all every Sunday night. An honor to stand behind this pulpit, too. Got a question for you. What could go wrong at a hospital if a healthy baby is born to a healthy mother, healthy, happy mother, and they're both discharged to go home? What could possibly go wrong? Well, maybe you've already thought about a possible thing that could go wrong. The healthy baby could be given to the wrong mother. Unfortunately, this goes on at a surprisingly high rate. I didn't really realize that until recently, how often that happens in the world. Not so much in the United States, but in a lot of other countries, there's actually baby switches. Here in America, I think they put that tag, I mean, when that baby is maybe even halfway out, they probably put a little tag on the, uh, the wrist or something to make sure that doesn't happen, but that's not always true in all the other countries. I read of one incident that happened over a, couple, uh, over a year ago in the Czech Republic. A baby switch had, in fact, occurred between two couples, and it was, believe it or not, the father of one of the couples that actually realized that this didn't seem like it was his baby. It wasn't the mother. You'd think the mother would pick up on that right away, but it was actually the father. And so he went back to the hospital. He complained, talked about his suspicion. Uh, DNA tests were ordered. They were put through, and sure enough, it was verified that that baby did not belong to that couple. Hospital, of course, felt terrible about it, found the other couple and told them, that baby doesn't belong to you. So we've got the right parents, we've got the babies. The problem is that this is over a year after this occurred. The kids, the boys, these two boys were already um, nearly a year and a half old. And so although you think that would be a simple thing to just switch the babies back to the rightful parents, that's not in fact what occurred at all. I mean, there's a lot of problems, legal problems, emotional problems, and now there's marital problems because the mothers, of course, had become attached and now they don't want to They can't get away from their child, which is not really their child, but they're attached to that child. It's a mess. Can you reliably tell paternity merely by external appearances? I mean, do children always look like their parents? Aren't you glad you don't look like you look like the day you came out of the womb? (laughs) When I see pictures of babies, and you know, sometimes people like to show that. It'll be on the, the web or something like that, or on somebody's blog. They'll show a picture of the baby. They always look the same. They're reddish with a head that's impossibly too big for the neck, uh, squinty eyes. And if you show me a picture of your baby that was just born like that, and and I'm going to smile and I'm going to say how cute it was, but I just want you to know I'm not really thinking that. (laughs) If you'll show me a picture about a year later, I'll probably agree with you totally that you have the cutest baby in the world. But, and I'm not saying that I was any different from that. I'm, I'm positive when I came out of the womb Uh, You know, immediately I looked exactly like that. I'm sure the doctor pulled me out, slapped me on the bottom, and probably slapped my mother. (laughs) Some kids really do look remarkably like their parents, at least eventually, at least for a while. What if paternity was actually based on behavior, though? We sometimes behave as if we believe this. You know, you hear the mother say to the son, you know, you act just like your father. Or the father to the daughter, you act just like your mother. But, you know... I don't know what Adam and Eve looked like. I know I share their DNA. That's true from the book of Genesis. I do know that I resemble them in character. And so, you know, if you really want to know what Adam and Eve behaved like, if you want to know what they're like back then in the Garden of Eden, you could, after the fall, you could just look at me and examine my life before I was saved. 
I resembled them perfectly, I am sure. Last Sunday, I was saying something about that we resemble Adam in our sin and therefore complicit in his guilt. We die like Adam and without Christ would suffer the judgment that all of Adam's offspring incurs. But through the new birth, that is being born again, we have a new father. So if before we are saved, we strikingly resemble Adam, I'm not talking about the way he looks or the way we look, but in behavior, then after regeneration, we should resemble, strikingly resemble our heavenly father and the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Because we're related to God. If we're born again, we should, like father, like son, we should mimic him and resemble him to become almost spitting images of God. It is possible. Matter of fact, the truth is, in fact, that resemblance to God is expected. Resemblance to God is expected. It's demanded by each one of us. The Apostle Paul plainly says in Ephesians 5.1, be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God. It's an audacious thing to order of us that of all the people in the world, that would be the one that we ought to be imitating, this invisible God. How can we do that? But Peter picked up on the same thing. 1 Peter 1, 15, 16 says, Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. He says later in his letter, 1 Peter 2, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. That's not an optional sort of thing. That's what Christ has done, left us an example. We're to follow in his steps. So the first thing I would like to say to you tonight is to make sure you get that in your head, that this is not an option at all, but that since you belong to God, you belong to Christ, you are to resemble him in every way. Now, resemblance to God is expected, it's demanded. Fortunately, what God expects, he enables. Remember that. What God expects, he enables. So you're not by yourself on this. How does God do this? I mean, how does God make us holy and develop us so that we resemble him. What role do we take? Let me tell you what role we take in growing our family resemblance to God. Okay? I said that resemblance to God is expected. Resemblance to God comes through spending time with him. Turn to Acts 4.13 for just a moment. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Acts 4.13 says, Now as they observe the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Recognize them as having been with Jesus. I love that thought, and it sticks with me an awful lot. I remember coming um, back from lunch. I was eating lunch one time with Ben Barnard. We came back from lunch. This is before he was married to my secretary, Abby. When we walked into the door, he was just going to say hi to his, I think, fiancé then. And she immediately said, what's that smell? I can tell where you guys ate lunch. And she was just about right. For some reason, whatever we were eating, the aroma had carried with us. And when we walked in the office, it smelled like whatever it was. If it was, if it was I don't know, if it was like Mexican food, then it was like the, the, the smell of Mexican food was in there. It made me want to change the... Uh, Change the Bible verse to, uh, after she observed the confidence of Don and Ben and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, uh, they, she was amazed and began to recognize them as having been with some burritos or something. But it, it had carried in there, and she could smell that, and she guessed that right away. And I was thinking about what, what that's like to be, to be around Jesus. 
to spend time with him. I mean, do you start to smell like him? Do you start to talk like him? Are your facial expressions like him? Um, We need that. What does this mean, having been with Jesus? What happens to you when you spend time with another person? Well, you know. Don't you start to resemble them in some ways? You start to think like them, talk like them, laugh or cry at the same things, laugh at the same things, be sad at the same things, be mad at the same things. Some of you parents have probably had that, your, your son or daughter who goes home for the afternoon or for the weekend or a sleepover with that one kid. You know that one kid, when your kid comes back home, they start acting a little bit different. The way they talk and things like that, they've been spending time with that friend and it's influential. But that's the way it's supposed to be with Jesus. Becoming like Jesus takes time. Here's what John, in John chapter 1, uh, it's a great model of discipleship. This is, what, this is what John says. And Jesus turned, this is verse 38 of John 1, Jesus turned and saw them. The them are two disciples of John the Baptist who has just said, John the Baptist just said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And later on, John tells us that one of the disciples was Andrew, and I think the other one was John. He says, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is translated teacher, where are you staying? Now, of all the questions to ask Jesus, the first question that you ask him, I don't think it ought to be something like, where are you staying? But I think I know what happened. I mean, they're following behind Jesus, desperately trying to think about what they want to say to him to get his attention because they want to know about this person that John the Baptist, the greatest prophet in the history of the world, said, look, the Lamb of God. And so then Jesus turns around. And they're startled, and so they don't know what to say. So the first thing that comes out of your mouth is, where are you staying? And gracious, gracious Jesus says, come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Which means it's too late to go home, so you basically spend the night. You spend some time with Jesus. Come and you will see. And here's what Matthew eleven twenty nine 29, Jesus says to us, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus says, come, and you will see. Then he says, come and follow me. And it takes time. There's a great concern in my life over the ones that I shepherd here that there's not enough commitment to Bible reading and Bible study. It is the joy of my heart to encourage men and college students and post-college students to read the Bible and get in that. It is the discouragement of my heart that almost every time I ask somebody, what did you read in the Bible this morning, they say they didn't do it. And so, trying to be as gracious as Jesus, I say, well then, I'm sorry, what did you read last night? To which I get this typical answer, well, I didn't do last night either. Sometimes I've asked college students, well, what do you do first thing in the morning? And they will say, well, I check my Facebook email, and text messages. And so people will check anything before they check God. But it's true even as adults that it's a difficult thing to get people to get in this habit. Too few colonial members are actively, daily, reading, meditating, and, and memorizing Scripture. I have seen in my own wife, who is in the middle of painstakingly and methodically memorizing the New Testament, I've seen her life change before my eyes. Um, and it's an amazing thing. And she is full of Scripture. And now, and this, is, this can get uncomfortable for a husband, uh, she, 
she thinks in scriptural terms all the time now and is always coming up with something, some application um, from the scriptures about almost any incident that we come across. She walks a lot, is in good shape. I'm not in good shape, but occasionally I will accompany her on walking. And so she usually is um, talking about something that she has read in the scriptures and something she's memorizing. The thing is, though, that it's changing her life. Well, of course it is. Of course it is. She's spending time with Jesus in the Bible. We have about 10 feet above the people in the back row that we have a seminary. Let me just say that one more time, just in case you know. About 10 feet above the heads of the people back there, there's a seminary. Oh, you don't have to look around. It's, it's above your head, too. It's called Shepherd's Theological Seminary. And it, I'm so glad for all the students that are there. It always makes me the happiest, though, actually, when I see um, just the, the regular lay folk who are auditing classes. I, took, I taught uh, the, the parables of Jesus a couple of weeks ago, and I see some of my students um, right over there. Just th- th- there's, there's a couple over there that just came to my class every single night from 6 o'clock to 10 o'clock um, because they love the Word of God, and they're not tired of it. I even see Liana over there um, who's actually working on a degree, but she took the course just to audit it. She doesn't need the credit. She does surgery at, in Durham, North Carolina, operating on people's faces and necks all day long, and then she drives over, her races over here to take a course on the parables of Jesus, and not for credit, but just because she loves the Word of God. We have got to spend time with Christ. That's the, that's, the, that's the primary way and our major responsibility in learning how to resemble God. So resemblance is expected. Resemblance comes through time spent with Jesus. And thirdly, resemblance to God comes through training and imitation of godly leaders. Here's what Paul says in Philippians 3, 17. Brethren... Join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. A chapter later, he says, The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. He said to the church at the Thessalonians, chapter, um, 2 Thessalonians 3.9, Not because we do not have the right to do this, that is to take money because we're serving you, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. And to the church at Corinth, he said, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Everybody likes to say about Paul, the apostle, that, well, he's so special and he's the greatest Christian in the world that we can all follow him and therefore follow Christ. But nobody else sets that kind of an example, yet the Bible will not back that up. But you can, you are, you must be, and we have at Colonial godly men and women who set the example about how to follow God. And by imitating them, then we imitate God and we take on his resemblance. Colonial is blessed to have so many godly examples for us. I, I'm just looking, I, I look at this a little swath of three dear ladies. There's a whole bunch of dear ladies, but I see Marilyn Hodgins, Nancy Mazaki, and Mary Hans right there that are godly, godly women. Mary has not walked, in, Mary, you haven't walked in my office in, in it seems like a year. But every time you walk in there, I always just want to, um, I want to just say, Mary, just hang on for a second. Let me go get you a pulpit. The Bible says that older men are supposed to teach the younger men. Older women teach the younger women. But I hate to say this, but when Mary Hans walks in my office, I just want to hear everything I want her to teach me. We're blessed at this church to have, I just named three. They're all over the place. 
There's so many godly men in this church all over the place. Myself, I'm the most fortunate and blessed man that has ever lived. Every time I am in a meeting with the elders, I'm always thinking the same thing. I know they don't think I'm thinking this, but I'm thinking this thing. I'm thinking, what in the world am I doing here? And how did I get here? I do not deserve to be at this table. Across the wall from my office is Brad Harbaugh, one of the godliest, gracious men that I know. He walks into my office and will pray with me without me asking. I'll have Mike Malpas will just walk, he'll just walk into my office and sit down and pray with me. It's the most wonderful thing. Do you have that at your office? I, I doubt it. I doubt it. But you have in this church those kinds of people. One thing is that you're supposed to be that kind of people. The other thing is that we do have those kind of people, and they help us by living out Christ's life in front of us, by imitating God, by resembling God themselves, then we can imitate them. And that's what they are there for. That, that can actually happen. So we're blessed that this year we have ABF teachers and leaders. We have women in our women's ministry and leaders in student ministry, EE leaders, and on and on. And they also imitate God. They all serve to imitate God, and therefore they serve to help us imitate God too. Here's the fourth thing. Resemblance to God comes through his discipline. Resemblance to God comes through his discipline. Here's Hebrews 12, 5 through 10. You have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline of which all of you have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness." We have all the characteristics of God for him to pick out that he wants to share with us. It's that one. That's the scariest one of all. That's the one that I'm most frightened of is God's holiness. But he disciplines us so that we will share in his holiness. That's really quite high praise. That's quite great honor from God that he would do that so that we will share his holiness. The, father disciplines, the, the father's discipline is only for his children. It always has a purpose. The writer of Hebrews says that God's discipline causes us to share his holiness. What exactly do the disciplines do specifically? I thought of three things that you might want to think about, to, and this is to encourage you. Three things that discipline does in order to make us holy. Here's one. It gets our attention. And it's the most effective thing that God does. I mean, when he disciplines us, he is so good at that. I was a high school teacher for 20 years. I still never mastered the art of getting my students' attention. I thought about bringing like a gun, firearms, uh, dynamite, something like that, but I'm afraid that they, they wouldn't. I usually had to, was, had to interrupt one of their cell phone calls while I was teaching, so that's what made it difficult. You know that when the Corinthian church, when Paul was dealing with many of their problems, he one time said on the matter of their abuse of the Lord's Supper, he said, many of you are sick 
and dying because of this abuse. But he says, he flat out says that they were being disciplined by the Lord. God was able to get the church at Corinth by doing something about as bad as it gets. Serious illness and even death. And that's one thing that discipline does. It gets our attention. So you should, you should be thinking when you're undergoing discipline, at least it should come into your head. You should evaluate it. Is God trying to get my attention? He wants me to be more holy. He wants me to resemble him. Is he trying to get my attention? The answer may be that there is no sin in your life. In which case, I have a couple more things to say, but that should come to your mind. Is he trying to get my attention? He is surely trying to do that. It may be that there's a sin that you need to deal with, but God does it because he loves us, because he's a father, because we're his children, because he wants us to be able. Here's a second thing. Discipline prevents sin. Remember when Paul talked about himself as having a thorn in the flesh that was given to him? A thorn in the flesh? He said... It was given to him to keep him from becoming exalted. To keep him from becoming exalted. The text doesn't say that he got the thorn in the flesh because he was exalted, but apparently that he could be exalted. Now, sometimes, you guys, when, uh, when God is doing something with you, you need to think to yourself, if you evaluate your life and say, I do not know that I have any known sin in my life. My sin, so far as I know, is confessed. I am not disobeying my father. Then you might ask yourself this. Could it be that God's just trying to prevent something that could happen? This is not an easy thing to take. Somehow it seems just if you've been sinning, God punishes you. It seems deserved. It is. But when you haven't done something, consider that like Paul, God could be doing something in your life because he knows you might be this way or you have a propensity for this and he's trying to prevent that. Now, that's a father that really loves you, a father that prevents you from sinning by discipline. And then, of course, the obvious thing that would be true of all of this is the third thing is that discipline teaches us. God uses his discipline to teach us. And I think about now righteous Job that we studied a couple years ago. Job did not have sin in his life. He was not doing something wrong. He was not being punished. He was just simply learning. He was learning, in particular, the sovereignty of God. So God's discipline, it gets our attention, it prevents sin, and it teaches us. And it's an important part, and one of his chief means, God's chief means of helping us to to share his holiness and therefore to resemble him more and more. The, The thing is, is that you're not really as enthusiastic about sharing his holiness as he is. And that's what makes the Christian life so difficult. It's that he's trying to do something that you're supposed to want, but you're having trouble wanting it. But he desires for you to be somebody that you're not far, far more than you do. But it's best. Here's probably the the most encouraging thing of all. Although it is true that resemblance to God is expected. It's demanded. It comes through time. Spending time with Jesus. It comes through discipline, no doubt about that. But it's also true that that resemblance to God is inevitable. It's absolutely inevitable. Here's what 1 John 3, 2 says. It's a great verse. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. We will be like him. This is very typical in Scripture for God to say, this is what I demand, 
and then for God in the end to finally do it, right? He says, be sanctified. And then the scripture says that he will sanctify us. That's how great God is. He says, do this. Of course, you can't do it. So I'll help you do it. And then I'll make sure that it gets done. What a great father we have. Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. I find in these scriptures in particular, but in all of this studying that I did, that I've got a lot of work to do, and I've got a lot of encouraging to do to my brothers and sisters. And so my appeal, again, is to ask you to do this. Look, when you're face-to-face with a demand of God that you imitate him, that you be wholly like him, as, as Peter said, quoting from Leviticus, when you have that demand, don't be asking around, like, I wonder what the will of God is for, for, for tomorrow. What's the will of God for this thing? I can tell you what the will of God is. It is for you to resemble your father. So you go with all haste in that direction to do that. And here's how to do it. You play a role. The role is that you spend time with Jesus. So that when you walk into a room, what everybody smells is Jesus. And so that people will say, I can tell that that person's been around Jesus. That's what's needed in the business place right now. That's what everybody needs to see tomorrow in the office. But you know where it needs to start, men? It needs to start in the home. This is, where, this is a major place where we're failing, where, where, where women, wives, and children see that the father and the husband has been spending time with Jesus, and it's obvious. When somebody spends time with Jesus, there's a whole lot of things that go out the door and a whole lot of things that come in. That's the role that you play. Here's the role that the church plays, and Colonial is doing a good job, but we all need to do a whole lot better. We have places where godly men and women are influencing all of us. I am being influenced by godly men, occasionally by godly women, which is so wonderful. And I, I go home every night to a godly wife. I don't know whether you have a godly spouse or not, but you have people in this church that are examples of how Christ lives. You need to surround yourself with those sorts of people. You need to go this week, if, especially if you're a younger Christian, to a godly man or woman, probably older than you, and ask if you could meet with them on a regular basis and have the Word of God taught to you. You who are leaders, and this room is filled with them, remember this great responsibility that you have. You do not have an option about discipleship. There's no option about it. Everybody in here, starting with your spouse and then your children, is obligated to be involved in the life of somebody else, teaching them how to follow Christ. There's so many hungry people here who are looking for that. And there are, we have leaders all over the place. My challenge to you as a leader is that you do, in fact, do that and remain faithful all the way to the end. For every professing believer, we're encouraged to ask ourselves how much we resemble our Heavenly Father or whether we actually resemble Him at all. John said that it was obvious who the children of God were and who the children of the devil were. Scary, scary stuff. Obvious. Don't have to investigate, it's obvious. This is what he said. The children of God practice righteousness and love their brothers. If family resemblance is not there to some degree and is increasing, we are right to doubt family relationship at all. For those who are progressing in family resemblance and find this the main desire of your heart, you are encouraged that your progress is inevitable. 
and it will end with you taking on the image of Christ. My own walk at trying to resemble God is probably a lot like yours. It's like a roller coaster. (sighs) Up and down, starts and stops. But I have people around me. I'm surrounding myself with people that keep me going. And I'm comforted by the fact that one day I will be like Christ. I'm looking forward to that. Of course, as I get older and get on the other side of middle age, I'm really, really looking forward to that. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. God willing, I would like to conclude this with family dynamics. How does a family stay together, get together, live together? Real, real church life. So we're talking about family origins, family resemblance, and then family dynamics. Family dynamics.